Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in the lion's den with Dr. Aaron Brown. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Doc Brown, as I just called him as he walked Great in. Great Scott. <laughs> so, Aaron, first question. Mm-hmm. What you smoking? I am smoking a Safari Maduro, and it is most excellent. Yes. Most excellent. Joe Basil, Safari Cigars. Check Holy Smokes. And uh, they he does some... Uh, um, Coupon codes occasionally where you, where we can get some and for some much better prices and uh, yeah they they are one of my favorites. I'm getting a little low. Joe gives gives me some for the podcast and so Joe I'm getting low. I'm gonna need some more. Joe, this is Aaron. I'm getting low too. So if you want to send me some, more. Kevin, I'm getting low also. <laughs> So, from your accent, we can tell you are not originally from Colorado. What? What? <laughs> that is correct. Uh, originally from Oklahoma. I grew up in southeastern Oklahoma. And uh, my claim to fame, or at least what I ask people is, have you ever heard of Reba McIntyre? And country music singer, and most people have heard of Reba uh, whether it be from her music or the show she had in the early 2000s. I said, well, my mother went to high school with Reba. I went to that same high school. And I grew up with Reba's nieces and nephews. A fellow Holy Smokeser, uh, Mark Eaton, down in Chalky, Atoka, Oklahoma, is uh, married to Reba's sister. Wow. And so, a uh, really good friend. And so, yeah, I grew up in that area, that southeastern part of Oklahoma. And um, was there for the first... 18 years and then I went to a university in Tulsa, Oklahoma and was there for about 15 years before I made I finally made the right decision and moved out here to Colorado Springs. So, yeah. Let's talk about growing up. What was it like? Where did you grow up? Grow up in the church? Yeah, absolutely. So, I grew up in a really rural community, about 700 people in my town, a little town called Kiowa, Oklahoma. So, it's like Iowa just with a K at the beginning of it. And we call it Kiowa here in Colorado because we have a town not that far away. Yeah, and the streets named after it here in the cities or downtown. Grew up in more of a Pentecostal word of faith tradition. So I did grow up in the church. My mother was my Sunday school teacher, which is embarrassing if you're a kid Mm -hmm. in your mother's Sunday school class. So she was Mrs. Brown. And I tried to call her Mrs. Brown because I was embarrassed at the fact that my mother was my Sunday school teacher. A town of 700 people, I'm sure it was kind of known throughout the church that she was your mother. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was no, <laughs> there was no doubt about that. I'm just saying I was embarrassed, Steve. That's all I'm saying. But I remember one time I said... Hiding it from your friends. <laughs> right. I remember I said, uh, Mrs. Brown, my mom goes, no, Aaron, I'm mama. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and so the, uh, the embarrassment of that heightened. So, so yeah, so grew up in the church, grew up in that Pentecostal charismatic tradition. Had a great time growing up in a small town. My graduating class was like 24 people, best I remember it. And what's great about those small schools is that you get to do a whole bunch of things. If you want to do them, you get to do them. And so not too much competition, but maybe there's also not too much talent if you get to do everything. Yeah. 
But um, when I turned 18... Uh, I graduated in the top 25 of my class. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but then it's like, oh, 24. And you came in at 24. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So it was a good time. I'm very thankful and appreciative of the time I had growing up in that small community. And ended up... What was the family situation growing up? Siblings? So mom, dad, brother. So just uh, us What'd four, your parents no do? more. So my father, he ended up having two careers over the course of my life. One was he was a boat dock builder, which may seem really odd when you say Oklahoma. Why would you be in a marina company in Oklahoma? Lakes. But there's tons of lakes. So Oklahoma has more shoreline than any other state in the lower 48. Seriously? More Seriously. than Minnesota? Yeah, more than Minnesota. It's wild. So 10,000 lakes. So, yeah, so he did that. And then by the time I went to college, he had started working for the military base that was situated near McAllister, Oklahoma. Uh, his claim to fame would be that he helped manufacture the missile that blew up Al-Zarqawi in uh, 2006, 2007, when we had first started kind of really fighting the Taliban. So... I guess that would be kind of some of his claim to fame. Yeah. So my mom was a homemaker, and when I went into kindergarten, she stopped working and took care of my brother and I. And so Are you number one or number two? I'm number one. Number one of two. What's the split between you and your brother? I think two and a half years, something okay. like that. My brother lives in South Korea. He's been over there for about 10 years. He teaches English, uh, has his master's in teaching English as a second language. He's mm. married. So, yeah, so he's been over there for a while, but, yeah. So you go to Tulsa, mm -hmm. ORU. Mm -hmm. What'd you study? What'd you do? Yeah, I started out as, as a secondary education major, so I wanted to teach high school, and I wanted to teach history and civics, so that was my minor, history and civics. And somewhere in my sophomore year, I felt like the Lord kept saying, change your major. And I was like, no, I'm one of those, once I start something, I'm going to finish it, follow it, you know, all the way through. So there were just these months of kind of wrestling with God, like, no, I'm not going to change my major. And I felt like he was asking me to change my major to communications, which, you know, catches a lot of crap uh, when people say that they have a communications degree, but... I was like, no, I started out, this is my trajectory, this is what I'm going to do. And uh, finally, re you know, in prayer, wrestling with God about it, I remember one night I said, okay, God, fine. If you want me to change my major, then you've got to get rid of my current major. And I'll never forget, I said, ha, that'll never happen. So a week before spring break, I walk into my advisor's office to ask some questions, Mrs. Garrison. And Mrs. Garrison stops me. She says, Aaron, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I'm going to go home for spring break. I'm going to do this. And suddenly I realized we're not talking about my spring break plans. And I just stopped and said, wait, Mrs. Garrison, what do you mean? What am I going to do? She goes, well, now that you don't have a major... And I remember just standing there, like I was probably like freaking out, you know, kind of had like that shocked look on my face. She's like, it's going to be okay. And I wasn't freaked out that my major was gone. I was freaked out because the Lord did the thing that I said, ha, that'll never happen. 
So there was a period where they just basically disintegrated that degree. They eventually came back and revamped it into an history education major. But, you know, the Lord followed through on my ha and dissolved that degree for, you know, a few days, a few weeks, something like that. And so I ended up switching to communications, wasn't really sure, you know, what all that would entail. Initially, my thought was I'm going to do communications and then I'll go do a master's in counseling. And that was my game plan. But, you know, things as always, they evolve, they change. And felt like the Lord was saying, pursue an MBA, Masters of Business. And so I ended up graduating from ORU. I worked for a recruitment firm for the oil and natural gas industry for a year. And then I got recruited back to come back and be a residential life director for the university. So I ran the largest men's dormitory on campus. Um, So ended up there for five years doing that, working on the MBA, ended up earning an MBA in finance. That has been a really funny conversation the last couple of weeks because um, I teach finance for a university called North Central University online. And North Central Minneapolis? Not that one. No, this one's out of Arizona originally. Headquarters are in, uh, in San Diego area. Yeah, so everybody looks at me like, an MBA in finance? I thought you had like a theology degree or something. No, no theology degrees here. So it's been fun having that conversation with people. And then finished the MBA and I was like, I don't want to go back to class ever again. I don't want to sit in a classroom. I don't want to do any of that. It's so boring. It's so tedious. I'm done with school. And then for about a year, the Lord bugged me again. And I just kept hearing him say, pursue a doctorate. And I was like, no, (laughs) no, there's no, no. And, you know, I just did my typical, instead of doing the ha for this time around. So for about a year, I just heard that still small voice, pursue a doctorate. And eventually I said, you know what, God, if this is something you really want me to do, just start putting like some road signs is what I called it. Put some road signs in my path that just reinforces that you want me to do this. And sure enough, I took on a new position at the university called Director of Student Experience. And eventually I would get another title with that called Director of Student Leadership Development. But I would just end up in meetings and it was like a doctorate in pursuing leadership. And that's really what the Lord said, pursue a doctorate in leadership. And it just kept coming up, coming up. And finally, you're like, okay, God, I get it. I get it. I'll do it. And uh, when I became director of student experience, I was really fortunate to just really knock it out of the park. The president of the university at the time was super pleased with, with everything I was doing. And I thought to myself, well, if any time's the time to ask for somebody to pay for this, this would be it. So I went to my vice president's office and got a lot of favor with him. And I said, hey, you know, I I feel like I should be pursuing this. I realize my position doesn't qualify for funding compared to some other positions in the university, but I'm just checking to see. I'm doing my due diligence. He goes, okay, well, you don't have, you know, it's not, a portion you don't have that apportionment for this position but let me get back to you 
So I get a phone call a few days later, come back, sitting in his office, and uh, he says, I called HR. They said your position didn't qualify for it, but I told them your position did, so we're gonna find the money for it. So half of it was paid for during my time at ORU, or you know, three-fourths of it was paid for during my time at ORU, and it was a great time. I was leading about four or five different departments in the role that I was in, and so studying organizational dynamics and leadership, you know, taking that theory and then putting it practical real life really came home for me. So it was a really good time. It was a good time. And then in 2016, I transitioned out of ORU with the intention of moving here to Colorado Springs. I just didn't realize that God wanted to take me through a little bit of a wilderness experience. So tried out a few different things, uh, started a coffee company, sold a coffee company, and uh, ended up working as a director of strategic partnerships for a Sylvan Learning Center. So people who may not be familiar with Sylvan, works with kids who need tutoring, a little bit of a leg up. They're not getting that in their schools just because of constraints. So they can come to a Sylvan Learning Center. So I was fortunate enough uh, to get to work with the Osage Nation in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. So went in, we had a deal with them. It's just we needed a new deal with them and ended up planting three satellite campuses in their reservation area and just had a great relationship with them. Uh, they really honored me when I announced that I was moving to Colorado Springs and, and everything. They really honored me, um, gave me some really cool Osage-inspired like blankets and things like that. So it was a really good time. and. Definitely appreciative of that time that I got with them. You said wilderness. Mm -hmm. Did it really feel like a wilderness? In the time it did. How so? I think because my heart was here. So part of... So what were the years? Yeah, so that was 2016. is when you left and then when did you get yeah. here? Yeah, so at the university, my last two or three years there, kind of the ethos of the university was changing. So? And we had been, you know, we had been deeply entrenched in like a Pentecostal, word of faith, charismatic uh, tradition. And I still consider myself a charismatic, but there were some attitudes and theologies and things like that that were creeping up. And I was like, man, we have done so well to transition, come into a new day. Felt like we got a golden age of the university all over again, and then the ethos just kind of started changing again, moving back towards that Pentecostalism and some of that word of faith. And I don't want anybody to think that I'm disparaging that. Uh, there's definitely things that I don't agree with in those traditions, but there's also wonderful things about it. But for me, I'm a charismatic. That's where I want to hang out at. And going back to some of those uh, Pentecostal and Word of Faith traditions wasn't something that I was excited about. And so during that time, like these last two or three years, is when I met Kay Hiramine. He was on the board at ORU. I think the Holy Smokes was about 200 people at that time. And so he and I are driving around in Tulsa, Oklahoma after uh, we did like a prayer meeting for students. And he had asked if he could do it, so we made it happen. And what year is this? So this is probably 2015. It's 2015, spring of 2015. And 
we're driving around looking for something to eat. And at that time, Tulsa rolled up at like 9, 10 o'clock. So the only thing that was open was Taco Bell. So I love Taco Bell. It's my guilty pleasure. And apparently it's also Kay's guilty pleasure. So we go get Taco Bell. We're sitting in this hotel lobby eating Taco Bell, talking about different things. And he says, Aaron, what's the, what's the Lord saying to you? And I said, well, and Kay and I had a new friendship at that point. And uh, leading up to that friendship, for about a year, I felt like the Lord said, be friends with Kay. Like I'd see him once or twice a year in these trustee meetings that we would have. At the time, we were forbidden to have communication with trustees. And so I'm like, Lord, you want me to be friends with this trustee and you know that it's forbidden. So, you know, it sounds all biblical right there, right? And so I chewed on it for about a year and, you know, the Lord's real good about bugging me about things. And so chewed on it for about a year and I go into my vice president's office and I said, hey, I don't know what this means, but I feel like the Lord is saying, you need to be friends with Kay Hiramine. And he's like, well, what does that mean? I was like, like I said, <laughs> I don't know what this means. And so I, uh, I had a trip planned to India to teach leadership development in Bagdogra, India coming up. And so I was like, I don't know Kay from Adam, but I know I'm supposed to be friends with him. So I'm just going to ask him to pray for my trip to India. And that's kind of how I put the foot in the door, things like that. And Kay and I became friends and kept in contact. So on that night when we're eating Taco Bell, we're driving around and, and Kay says, you want to go get a beer? And I go, Kay, at, at ORU, we, we sign an honor code where we can't consume alcohol. And he goes, oh, okay. Um, well, I've got some Cubans in my suitcase. You want to smoke one of those? I go, okay, I'm on that contract is we won't consume tobacco products. He's like, what? <laughs> Just yeah. mind blown. He's like, okay, you should know this. You're a trustee. <laughs> so, yeah. so just a really funny moment. He says, well, I'm going to add you to my Holy Smokes group. So I think at that time it was like two, 300 people. So I like to say that I'm a, a Holy Smokes original and HSO, something like yeah. that. Um, even though I am like 200th down the line, you know, kind of like top of your, you know, I was the top 24 in my class, you know, I'm the top 200 in my Holy Smokes. So, uh, and then I, you know, eventually ended up leading a Holy Smokes chapter there in Tulsa uh, for a little bit, the Tulsa Holy Smokes. And that's... How'd that work out? Did Kay get that changed at the university or... Oh, no, <laughs> no, that was that was not a hill to die on anyway. So. So, yeah. But uh, eventually, you know, Kay transitioned out or and while we're eating our Taco Bell, Kay says, Aaron, what do you feel like the Lord is saying to you in this season? And so I've got this new friendship with this trustee. And I said, I feel like the Lord's saying forbidden it's time. friendship, forbidden friendship. Yes, forbidden <laughs> friendship. And I said, well, I feel like the Lord's saying it's time to leave the university. And he said, that's what I felt like the Lord say when, when I got to the campus this evening. And so that was just, you know, something that I needed to hear, something that was, you know, weird and out of the blue and something that I ended up chewing on for the next few months. And I remember in September, I knew it was time. And so for anyone who is, that's listening, that's familiar with ORU, I was sitting in my office in the Hammer Center at ORU and I picked up the phone, I called my mom, and she'd been a widow for about two years at that point. And I called her and I said, I'm moving to Colorado. 
you can move with me if you want to. She goes, sounds good to me. And so that's what I mean by, so going back to your question about the wilderness, not being able to get to Colorado for a couple of years, you know, after I left the university and tried my hand at a few different things. I remember I drove up here for the 2017 Christmas party at the Cigarage, and I like cried most of the way up, like just teary-eyed, and I'm like, God, like it's been in my heart for, at that time, 10 years, I think, 10 years to move to Colorado Springs, and I've got friends there, and I know people, and the Holy Smokes is, is there, and you know, I've been watching everything going on at you know, Paul Philodus's yard and stuff like that, so you feel like you know people, through the frequency and everything. And uh, I got here and then one thing led to another and I had a job interview. I interviewed, drove back to Oklahoma the next day, did a couple of phone interviews from there. And then in, I think it was early February of 2018, I got a phone call and I was driving and said, okay, Aaron, you're our guy, do you wanna come? And like my heart stopped. And that was a bad thing because I was driving. So I felt like I was going to pass out while I was driving on this like big interstate in Tulsa. And I was like, I'm coming. I'm there. And so moving to Colorado Springs was one of the best things for me. I've still got friends in Tulsa who are like, when are you coming back? I'm like, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not coming back. Yeah. Like this has been so awesome being here and, and I don't want to give it up. So, so, yeah. So that time that you were with the Osage Nation yeah. tribe. What was that like? What, what did you do? Yeah. Well, I oversaw our satellite campuses, and basically what we would do is we would hire tutors to come out to our campuses and work uh, with kids on their mathematics, their reading, spelling, things like that. We also did some advanced tutoring as well for kids that needed it. But at about each location, we had two or three. We had three. So, I mean, we probably had about anywhere between 10 and 20 kids at each location. So we would have tutors come out. I would tutor, work with the kids. I just have an extensive background in education. And so, so yeah, worked with them. And it was just a phenomenal time um, working with an indigenous people group and hearing their story. And it's funny because I've got a 0.1% of Native American in me. Uh, I've got cousins who are a quarter, half, stuff like that, that live in Oklahoma. But I do not um, have any of that, any indigenous blood really in me. So I'm, I'm somebody that's always been curious and enjoy meeting different cultures and getting to know those different cultures. And so towards the end... Uh, you know, Steve, as you can see, and anybody that may see me in a Holy Smokes, you know, Facebook page, I'm pretty darn white. <laughs> I mean, blonde hair, blue eyes, uh, light complexion. So I remember one of the team that I worked with at the Osage Nation, their Department of Education, they said, you know, honestly, Aaron, we didn't know who we were getting when we renewed this partnership and renegotiated and everything, but we just really appreciate how much you have done to get to know us and not impose you know, certain values or things like that. Mm. And we just really feel like you cared about us. Mm. Uh, the lady who still is the head of the Department of Education for the Osage Nation, she cried when she got the email from me that 
that I was leaving and moving out here and everything. And so, yeah, so it was just a great experience. Beautiful people. Um, if you've never read the book Killers of the Flower Moon, there's supposed to be a movie coming out with Leonardo DiCaprio playing in it. But that book chronicles the forced removal of the Osage Nation out of Kansas. So the Osage Nation actually used to hunt buffalo from the plains of Kansas to Colorado Springs. Like mm. they hunted those plains. Mm -hmm. um, and for about 30 or 40 years, I think, the Osage Nation would actually spend their summers here in Colorado Springs. So they knew wealthy people who would go vacation in Spain for the summer. And so when they had planted all of their crops, things like that, were waiting for them for harvest to come in the fall. They would just come out here for a month or two yeah. here in Colorado Springs and hang out. And so it's very much an Osage tradition to be a part of Colorado Springs. So before I get too lost in all of those thoughts, Killers of the Flower Moon. So they were uh, going to be forcibly relocated into Oklahoma. The federal government said, well, we're going to give you this reservation area. And the chief was very forward thinking. He said, no, you're not going to give us our land. We're going to buy our land from you. I think it's one of the most greatest business moves and foresight in recent history because when they bought North Central Oklahoma or what is now Osage County, they got all the mineral rights to all of the oil that would be that would be harvested. Uh, mm. Pahuska, Oklahoma, which is the county seat of that Osage area, bankers and investors from New York City would come in for these investing rounds and buying rights or at least leasing rights to minerals. And they would get into fist fights on the floor of this one particular building in, in Pahuska. They get into fist fights over somebody beating them to a land right or something like that. Uh, but eventually the book picks up in, in that time in Oklahoma, there was no police force. Just like lots of areas in America, there was no police force. So J. Edgar Hoover forms the FBI and one of their first tasks is to go out to Oklahoma and figure out who's murdering Osage Indians for their millions of dollars. So if you get a chance to check that book out, it's an amazing book. I read it and I'm just, I'm transported. Like I can see the cities and things like that that I used to work at. So, hmm. so yeah, go buy the book. I've got it downloading now from, from Audible. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna be listening to that one. I've, I've been, over the last couple of years, I've really been drawn to mm -hmm. Native American culture sure. and that past part of my DNA. Yes. And uh, I've got a great, great, great grandmother mm -hmm. who was um, Native Canadian. Okay. And, uh, um, and an indigenous tribe in Canada yeah. or, okay. Yeah. And uh, so I've, I've always respected and honored that part of my ancestry. Sure. And uh, the last couple of years, I've really just been digging into that more and more. Yeah. And and been just absolutely fascinated with just the history here in the United States and the tragedy and oh my gosh and uh, all of that yeah you know Colorado has a rich Native American indigenous history I mean you've got like the Ute Indians who did a lot with the Spanish joined forces against the Apache um, the Apaches forced. Uh, 
enforcement into a little community 50 miles east of Pueblo and then that then overnight they all disappeared and nobody knows where that Apache tribe went uh, after they disappeared out there but I mean if you forcibly removed me to east of Pueblo I'd leave too I mean that's just just how it is but mm-hmm. a rich history here like the Uncompagre Utes and other Utes it's a rich history so so yeah so you get to Colorado Springs mm-hmm. what are you doing who are you working with yeah I'm working with Summit Ministries uh, for for most of 2018 I was their national classroom and operations coordinator so oversaw three of the campuses uh, here in Colorado Springs but two campuses elsewhere in the U.S. I didn't, Overs- realize, I didn't realize Summit had campuses outside of Colorado Springs. They used to. I think they've rolled that back and now I think Calvin College will be their only site and that's out in Tennessee I think is where that one is. So unfortunately um, there was a financial downfall that year so it was kind of last in first out and so I was laid off did some interviewing things like that and got thinking about it around Christmas been you know doing several interviews and realized that my dissertation just was not getting done for my doctorate and so looked at how much of my dissertation looked at my bank book looked at my dissertation I said I think I can do this and so took six months off essentially from working and just got up every day, was sitting in a coffee shop by 8 a.m. working on that dissertation. And so uh, July of last year, I did my big presentation. And I was thinking about it just a few weeks ago in July. That had been a year since I'd done the presentation. And was just so touched because so many Holy Smokesers here in the Springs came out for that. I think they were the majority of the audience. And so that was just so touching. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was huge for me, like, just, you know, to be a part of a community, but for your community to also show up for you. In Oklahoma. Say that again. In Oklahoma, right? No, no, here. I did it here. Oh, you did. I did the dissertation presentation here. Yeah, so. Where at? uh, I did it at my church, Antioch Church uh, here in Colorado Springs. So presented there, probably had about 100 people, I think, something like that. And so that was huge. And. Uh, did all the video and audio and sent it off to my chair and then the waiting game began and in September I got an email a funny story is it was a Monday in September I'm sitting here in the lion's den Kay is here and Derek Fulmer is here and I'm sitting right over there and Derek goes doc are you a doc yet and I go man not yet so I was like I just don't know what's going on well, Wednesday morning, I'm at a coffee shop with my longtime friend and also the worship pastor at Antioch, and I pull up my email, and on Monday morning, I had received an email that said, congratulations, Dr. Brown. And I go, oh my gosh, I was a doctor on Monday, and Monday afternoon, I didn't know that. When I told Derek, I don't know what's going on, and so... I know there's like a sermon in there somewhere like you are something you just don't know you just don't know because you haven't checked your email yet something like that but I always like to tell people I was a doctor before I knew it (laughs) I just hadn't checked the email so I joke around with Derek about that every once in a while but huge accomplishment you know part of that and uh, I hope I don't cry but part of that is 
um, I was the first one in my family to go to college. Mm. So the first one out of all my cousins and, wow. you know, I was the first out of my cousins to finish. And uh, I think that, you know, first out of my cousins to finish, first to get my master's, and then, you know, first to finish my doctorate. And so that has had a, a good ripple effect. My cousin Tim ended up going back to school. He's at anesthesiology school at a university in South Dakota. And I've got another cousin that's finishing and things like that. So it's been a cool ripple effect, you know, just doing that. And so finishing that doctorate, anybody out there that's done one, you want to quit most of the time. You're like, why am I doing this and everything? But I think for me, uh, it was the last thing my father and I talked about. It was like the last dream uh, before he passed away. So he passed away seven years ago in 2013. Mm. And that was part of like what kept me, like I knew the Lord had said it, but I needed something, you know, I needed heaven and earth to meet. And so, you know, that earthly, this is the last thing we talked about, heavenly, this is, you know, the directive and everything. And so uh, it was a journey. And you know, finished that here in Colorado Springs. There's something special about doing that here, my new home and everything. And so, uh, so yeah, it's been good. It's been good. But just for the record, yes. I'm not crying. That was pollen from the trees, right, Steve? It's just one tear, but just, uh, I mean... It was can, pollen from the trees, you can, right, Steve? You can cry on the Holy Smokes podcast. <laughs> I guess so. We've, we've, we've gotten a few people to shed some tears over some stories. So you finished the doctorate mm -hmm. and you have a real heart for Gen Z. Yes. Talk about that. Yeah, so I was working on my dissertation and originally I wanted to discuss this idea of helping youth pastors bridge the gap with Christian worldview and Gen Z, because Gen Z, I think it's easy to say they are the least churched, even the least nominally Christian out of any generation we've had in the last, you know, 80 years in America. And so that was originally where I started out at. And I definitely did uh, incorporate a worldview factor because what I ended up exploring was Gen Z, which right now their age is 7 to 25. That's their age range. What I ended up looking at was, well, how did they become the most anxious, depressed, suicidal generation that we've had? I mean, apart from men in their 50s, uh, Gen Xers, they are the most suicidal generation that we have right now. So how did we get here? So um, explored that. And then, you know, it's not enough just to say, we know how we got here. How do we get out of here? And so I mapped out a way for organizations, for and nonprofits to onboard Gen Z employees. So you're receiving the most anxious, depressed generation into your organization. Uh, they're also holding a lot of worldview values that make them anxious and depressed. So what do we do to help them be productive citizens and productive here in the workplace and happier, things like that. So I merged cognitive behavioral therapy with the workplace and kind of a 360 feedback review. And so merged those things together so that to some level, 
uh, Gen Z learns how to do what they didn't get to learn to do in their high school and college years, which is control their levels of anxiety, but learn how to control those levels of anxiety in the workplace with new tasks that are developing. So that's where I ended up with that. And then when, when I finished the dissertation and everything, I was like, do I want to keep doing this? I mean, this is the thing that you're supposed to dedicate your life to when you do a dissertation, something like that. And I said, I want to keep doing this. So I started the podcast, Gen Z Deep Dive. And we don't just do episodes on Gen Z. We also cover millennials. Uh, we do a little Gen X, some baby boomers. But just take everyday events that are taking place in life today and saying this is the way it's likely seen through a Gen Z perspective. So the one that has dropped today while we're recording is I've got a friend who was or has been a political campaign manager, uh, consultant. And so I said, hey, let's let's break down three things that are going on for the 2020 elections and let's see it through Gen Z and millennial eyes. And I think that episode turned out pretty good. We got his perspective, we got my perspective, and uh, we are in for a wild ride. How so? Um, you know, everybody. Break it down a little more. For yeah, the let's do it. Let's drill down. So, in 2012, 18 to 29 year olds were solidly millennials. That was a solid millennial de- demographic. In 2012, about. of the electorate or the percentage of people that voted were from that 18 to 29 year old range. It's not a big chunk. Uh, It's enough to sway an election, but it's not a big chunk. In 2016, it was 13%. It just went up about 1%. And so at that time, you would have had a few Gen Z eligible to vote at that point. So the question is, is Gen Z really this activist generation that is going to come and turn out and vote and steer the elections in a certain direction? And I think the answer is no, they won't. Uh, Gen Z has a huge focus on transparency and authenticity. So if you followed anything on, on Instagram marketing or uh, Facebook, not so much. Instagram marketing is really where you see the influencer stuff, the Snapchat, uh, those things. Gen Z wants to believe that you actually use the product, that you're not just trying to sell me the product or you're just doing a little promo. They really want to believe that you're authentic, that you are really who you say you are. And... Though I think Joe Biden is authentically who he is, I mean, you know, Nancy Pelosi, we've got that famous sound clip when asked about, uh, you know, the alleged of rape or, you know, misconduct by Joe Biden. She's like, well, you know, Joe Biden's Joe Biden. And, uh, you know, I think that's pretty accurate. I think Kamala Harris, where some people think that she was a huge win in the VP pick, I think that those Gen Z that are paying attention when like Stephen Colbert last week said, you know, during the debates, you called Joe Biden a racist and a potential rapist. What has changed? And she's kind of giggling and laughing. She's like, oh, that was just debating. 
Well, if you're Gen Z, that doesn't seem very authentic to you. That, like you and I might say, yeah, they're debating, whatever. Maybe we're more principled than, than that to fall for it. But a lot of people would say, like, you know, Trump insulted uh, Ted Cruz's um, wife, said she was ugly or something like that. And somehow, I didn't vote for Trump in 2016, but, you know, somehow a good chunk of America got over that insult. I think one thing going for Donald Trump is that he's authentically a jerk on Twitter. Like he says these, uh, you know, mean, but maybe factual, maybe infactual things on Twitter, but he's consistent with it. And so that seems authentic to a generation. So 22% of Gen Z that's been polled says, that says that they're gonna vote for Trump. I bet they will vote for Trump. It's the other 80% that would be progressive. I just don't think they're going to show up because there's not much exciting about a Biden-Harris ticket. And that's another thing that young people say is it's got to be exciting. And if you've watched the DNC ratings from the last two days, it went down 50% yesterday. So it was like day two or something like that. It was down 50%. Hmm. People aren't watching. they they don't care. They're not tuned in. So it'll be interesting to see how all of that shakes out. And, you know, we won't know for a while how Gen Z voted, but I do think I'll be proven right that maybe we'll get another percentage increase. Maybe it'll be 13% of ages 18 to 29, but I think that'll be as high as it goes. Hmm. So. So you're big into generations. Where's that foundation really come from? Yeah, that's a great question, Steve. When I was working on my dissertation and my Gen Z material, I knew something was missing. And I remember praying, saying, Lord, I know there's something missing that's vital to this project, but I don't know what it is. And so I had scheduled, it was kind of a Hail Mary email to, I think his name's David Cho. He's the vice president of InterVarsity for Innovation and Evangelism. And so I just kind of sent this Hail Mary email saying, hey, I'm a doctoral student. I see that you do this with millennials. I've got some questions about Gen Z. Would you have 30 minutes? And that- When you say do this with millennials, do- Just evangelism, because I was had this worldview component. And so I was like, hey, you know, I see that you do evangelism with millennials and things like that. Um, can I just pick your brain? And so. While I'm picking his brain, he said, well, yeah, you know, I created my framework for millennials out of this book called Generations. It's a book written in 1991 mm-hmm. by Strauss and Howe. Go ahead. I see you're yes. nodding. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, in my opinion, one of the best books that I've ever read in terms of so thorough. understanding Western culture, where we're yes. going, where we've been. So dig into that. I want you to dig into that because it's something I don't think I've talked about on the podcast okay. yet. Yeah. And so let's spend some time here because yeah. so, there, there's there's some really, really cool stuff about where we are, where we're heading, mm-hmm. where we've been. Yeah. So one thing that Cho said to me, he said, I decided to develop a driving question. I was like, okay, unpack that for me. He said, there had to be a question that could kind of sum up what Gen Z was searching for or their ethos to this generation. And his question that he developed out of the generations theory that Strauss and Howe came up with was, what is beautiful? 
So he said, millennial, a millennial generation is asking that question. And when I look back on it, I'm like, oh my God, he's, he's right. Like uh, my generation, I'm a millennial. So I grew up in, you know, all of, like I go back and I read Strauss and how I'm like, they got me there, <laughs> they got me there, they got me there. And my generation is a generation that believed and to some degree still believes in this idea of your dreams can change the world. Maybe that's a great way to put it. Even with the way that I said that, I know some people are like, do dreams not change the world? Like, what is he saying? What I'm saying is I'm still chewing on that because I think that my generation has lost the biblical principle of vocation, that anything that you do, the Lord can be glorified Mm. in that task and activity. Mm -hmm. So I think my generation chases after things that will, after jobs that they think will make them happy, when ultimately no job can make you happy. It can bring you 50% satisfaction, 60%, 70%, 80% if you're doing, if you really have a great job, 80%. But no job is ultimately fulfilling, just like anything is not ultimately fulfilling. So I think my generation has has lost that biblical concept of vocation that the Lord can be glorified in anything that you do. So everything that I've said, that's why there's like a wording a certain way or something like that, because I'm still chewing on these ideas. Mm-hmm. So when Cho said that, I was like, I need to come up with a driving question. I think that's the right way to go. And so the driving question I ended up with with Gen Z is, am I safe? Am I psychologically safe? Am I physically safe? Am I emotionally safe? Now, asking that question does not mean that I am disparaging counseling, mental health, or anything like that. I'm a huge proponent of counseling. Uh, In my late 20s, I discovered that I had a genetic anxiety disorder that I went to counseling to work through, and that was phenomenal. That was great going and working through that. What that does mean is that in the 1990s, so Gen Z was born in 95, uh, in the 1990s, that environment was ripe to overparent, to overprotect, and it wasn't just in the household that we were overparenting or overprotecting. We were doing this in our governmental sphere. So you see a steady progression from millennials to Gen Z. So if millennials may be anxious or stressed out, Gen Z is going to be even more anxious and stressed out. And this is pretty typical in the generational landscape. So to bring this all home, um, I took generations, Strauss and House generations, but I also took their later book. It was about seven to nine years later, they wrote a book called The Fourth Turning, which, you know, if you follow the Trump administration and Steve Bannon, Steve Bannon reads that book every year and uh, believe that this was a pivotal time that we are in an American crisis and this was the time to win the crisis. And so I actually think Steve Bannon is right about that. I think we have been in what is called a secular crisis since 2008 with the financial crisis. But so I combine the ideas of those two books because they do change some ideas from one to the next. And what you end up with is this idea that generations repeat themselves in series or cycles of four. So the last time we started over this generational cycle was with the baby boomers. And so I combined Strauss and Howe's terms and I call them idealist prophets. And so they set the stage 
in our last great awakening. So people may not know, you know, maybe they're familiar with uh, Jonathan Edwards in the first great awakening. Maybe they're familiar with the second great awakening. Charles Finney. Charles Finney in the second, and then Billy Sunday in the third. And I know there's people out there who would argue with me about Billy Sunday being the third great awakening. I've got a good reason for that. Feel free to email me or hit me up on Instagram Set it up about that. Super quick. Yeah, so it's Aaron at DrAaronBrown.com, Brown. It's A-A-R-O-N. And then on Instagram, I'm just I-G-D underscore Aaron Brown. So feel free to hit me up on either one of those platforms. But but and then Billy Graham was the, the evangelical Christian leader in the Fourth Great Awakening. But we had something happened in the 1960s that nobody had considered in previous Great Awakenings, and that was the sexual revolution, feminism, the beginning of a solidified or ingrained New Age, psychedelics, drug culture. That was also a competing Great Awakening at the same time with Billy Graham and the Great Awakening. He was leading, I think, a couple of other things we could point to is the Jesus movement, um, hippies converting to Christianity, and things like that. So, But the baby boomers very much set the stage in that Great Awakening. Whatever happens in that Great Awakening, about 40 years later, will create what's called a secular crisis. So you have a spiritual event called a Great Awakening that is, it's a response, it's a counterculture move against the decadence that we experienced the 20 years before. And then things kind of start falling apart. So uh, if we look at the 1980s, 1990s, that culture was... Wars. Say that again. Culture wars. Culture wars. It's called an unraveling. So there's four seasons. You have an American high. You have an awakening. You have an unraveling. You have a crisis. And so... And past crises, we can think of crises. Yeah. We, we can think of World War II and the Great Depression. The previous one, Civil War. Civil War. Previous to that, Revolution. the American Revolution. American Revolution. And before that, the one before that would have been like the French-Indian Wars, um, Puritans, things like that. That would have been the other crisis that happened in America before the Revolution. And we're smack dab in the middle of a crisis right we now. Are sm- man... Yeah, I think it's going to last four or five more years, but we are in a crisis right now. And so uh, Falwell's moral majority is part of those culture wars. It's a response to the success of the awakening. And, you know, we've also got little economic crises that, you know, have kept pushing us, you know, kind of this way. A lot of people would think 9-11 was a huge crisis, and probably in the grand scheme of things it wasn't because it didn't lead us to a war that we could say this war is over. It led us to a quiet war, like we're always waging a war on terror. And for the most part, it's been away from U.S. soil, so it's kind of out of sight, out of mind to some degree. But Gen Z, people would say, oh, you know, Gen Z is really influenced by 9-11. There are only five or six when 9-11 happens. So if that's the case, then you don't really remember too much that's going on when you're five or six. What Gen Z does remember is the 2008 financial crisis when their Gen X parents get hit hard again by a financial crisis. Then we see... We see the landscape shift with Supreme Court rulings and what is marriage. And, you know, depending on what side of the fence you're standing on, you know, these are wins or these are losses. 
definitely, you know, transgenderism and how do we interpret that and how do we live with that in America is part of the crisis. And so really what I think we are in, it's the first time in these cycles of crises, we're not in a physical war, we're in an ideological war. And so this crisis is about who wins this ideological war and who is the gray horse. That's one thing that Strauss and Howe talked about in the fourth turning. And this is the champion. This is the champion that's going to change the course of history for America for the next 20 years. So if Biden and Harris win the presidential election, they'll likely shift the course of America towards one ideology, and that'll take place over the next 20 years. If it's Trump, same thing, just a different ideology. And so, I mean, we could wax eloquent about Trump's philosophical and, you know, is he a conservative? Spoiler alert for me, I don't really think he's a conservative. I don't think we're seeing traditional conservatism from Trump. And what we also, I think what we're also seeing, especially with our millennials and Gen Z, they're shifting to more of a libertarian republicanism as opposed to, you know, what we would traditionally think of as I see a lot of that in Gen X too, though. And I mean, part of it could be the fact that we're here in Colorado, the birthplace of the Libertarian Party. Oh. Colorado Springs yeah. was where it was founded and the headquarters is I didn't up know in, that. Yeah. I voted and, Libertarian in the last election, so. Yeah, I couldn't do Gary Johnson. I ended up going independent, voting independent. Yeah. I regret it because I really didn't give the abortion thought more, I should have given it more thought in that yeah. libertarian thing and and that was a big issue to me. So I didn't really feel like I thought that through very well. You were in Oklahoma at the time, right? I was, yeah. 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 So, but, you know, whoever wins this election, I think will steer the trajectory of the next 20 years. But the next 20 years isn't necessarily good news. What we always see with with the high, the American high, is that we just become more secular and it doesn't matter if you're Christian or secular or religious or anything like that. Really what you say is, man, I am exhausted from World War II and the Depression. I just want to move to suburbia, have a nice quiet life and call it a day. And what I think will end up happening is Biden and Harris win, will normalize a certain ideology. If Trump wins, we'll normalize a certain ideology. But ultimately, we'll just say, well, thank God that's over. And now I'm going to live my nice, quiet life and retreat. And then, you know, by about 2045, something like that, the next awakening. we'll have the next awakening. And we'll say, man, I feel spiritually dead. You know, whatever your religion is, you'll say, I feel spiritually dead because of you know what I've grown it up in or just my abdication in life, things like that. But that's when Gen Z will start to come alive is in that next, you know, yeah. in that awakening time. They're going to be those leaders of the youth that's going to be the fuel behind that next awakening. Let's hope so. I mean, that's, that's kind of what happened with civil rights in the 1960s. The silent generation was kind of the, the grandfatherly type figures of that. Gen Z will, they will say, I'm tired of playing it safe. I want to play it risky now. But typically what happens with that Gen Z generation, 
Um, so Gen Z, their, their designation is adaptive artists. And so they're gonna wanna move away from the safety element and play it risky, but us millennials and then the generation that comes after them, uh, the idealist prophets, kind of the new baby boomers, will say, no, get back in your place. This isn't the part that you play in history. You are, you know, you're this glue kind of in mm -hmm. the middle. So yeah, that's kind of how it'll go. I'm, I'm hoping it doesn't go that way for Gen Z. I really want to see them, you know, emerge from the cocoon, take flight, really, you know, take command with all their giftings and talents that they have. And then, you know, I, I think I'd just wrap up this section with, uh, I mentioned it once on my podcast and maybe listeners out there have heard that age six and younger, people are trying to call them the alpha generation. And I'm just gonna be perfectly snarky uh, with this. I think that is an incredibly unimaginative designation for a generation. And for those of us who know how generation theory works, we're watching the cycles and the seasons. My institute, the Institute for Generational Dynamics, uh, we have already started labeling that generation the new frontier generation. And for some people, this will seem a little far-fetched, but I think this will be the generation that that you know goes back to the moon, goes to Mars, maybe starts an early colonization or something like that. I think as as we figure out the new space age that Elon Musk and you know some others, Jeff Bezos have, and, and Bezos and these others are are you know help building basically the infrastructure for. I think this will be the generation that you know if you're a Star Trek fan, it's the final frontier. But I think this is the next step for human beings, and I think this will be uh, where the new frontier goes. And you know, maybe we'll get some evangelists that carry the gospel to Mars and evangelize some Martians or something like that, if they're even there. Who knows? <laughs> but <laughs> a little tongue-in-cheek joke. Yes. But. So, what do you think the next awakening will look like? So, season. Yeah. So what's interesting about like Jonathan Edwards' first Great Awakening, Sun, uh, Finney's second, and Sunday's third, is that the big thing that they did was appeal to what people already knew about God. So Edwards is Puritan, Finney is, is a Neo-Puritan, Sunday is Calvinist. And so they're appealing to a population like when Jonathan Edwards is preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God, three quarters of the colonies were Puritans. So when he's preaching, he's saying, we've got to go back to real Puritanism. We've got to go back to worshiping God. And he, he's appealing to what people already know. What will be interesting about the fifth great awakening in America is what we appeal to because Christianity, you know, as a hegemony, uh, the dominant religion in America, we don't know where that's going to be. And that's not like a statement of a lack of faith or anything like that. But we do know that biblical illiteracy is at its height. Uh, Barna has shown us that most churchgoers are considered churchgoers and go about 1.7 times a month. I don't, I'm not quite sure how that works. And maybe every fifth Sunday, you know, after a quarter or something like that. 
but we are more illiterate to our faith or more ignorant of our faith than probably we have been in a long time. So the question will be, who will those Jonathan Edwards and Finney's and Sundays and Billy Graham's, who will they appeal to and how will they appeal to them? What's the knowledge base? What's the, the ingrained experience or the nominal culture? And so I think that is that will be the telltale. Whoever captures that, and we would say by the work of the Holy Spirit, whoever captures that will do some great things in the next awakening. We got 25, 30 years. We got some time to figure it out, pray through it. So we should be good. We should be good. And I know I've heard some people say when I share with them, the next awakening is about 20, 25 years away. And they get a little disheartened or they get a little, totally. yeah. they get a little uh, defensive and they say, no, I want it now. And I think what we have to understand is, is that a scripture that I use in my dissertation is uh, from Ecclesiastes, you know, for everything there is a season yeah, and there's a time. And we have these seasons and this time, you know, a Gen Xer, Steve Ryder, a millennial, Aaron Brown, we have time and I would say a vocation to lay the infrastructure totally. for the next awakening. So, uh, you know, let's not get too beside ourselves about timing or anything like that. Let's make sure that we're doing the work so that the awakening does happen. Totally, totally. Yeah. And for boomers, really, um, something that I have told them about that next awakening is the scripture that when Solomon finished the temple, and everyone finally went away after all. Mm -hmm. The people marveled at mm -hmm. what God had done for yeah. his son, David. Yeah. They were the ones that got, David was the one that got credit even though he wasn't there. Yeah. And so, I mean, boomers can really be sowing into That's exactly right. Gen Z. They can really be sowing into millennials. They can yeah. really be sowing into these ministries that are laying the groundwork. Yes for this next awakening. Yeah. And that's not to mean good stuff isn't going to happen in the meantime. Not at all. I mean, yeah. good stuff happens. Yes. And you can be a part of that. Well, but the big harvest, the big, you know, yeah. awakening really is going to likely happen after the boomers are gone. Yeah. And I would say, I mean, we, we've got to look at that American high and see the groundwork that Billy Graham, I mean, Billy Graham laid a lot of groundwork in the American high that eventually got him to the Great Awakening, but Oral Roberts and I would even say like a Kenneth Hagin, you know, and those are kind of, you know, from my word of faith background a little bit, but those figures were pivotal in changing how evangelicals viewed God. And so if they had not started shifting that in the American high, how we positively see God in the church today may not have happened if they hadn't laid that groundwork. So, you know, Oral Roberts was like, you know, uh, God wants to do something good for you today, tonight. Um, he's got a plan for your life, things like that. And those were things, those were ideas that had kind of fallen by the wayside for the most part. So we definitely have a part to play. It's not just sitting around twiddling our thumbs like, okay, I got 25 years. No, no, you've got 25 years to carry out your vocation and, and to help make this happen for another generation. So, so yeah. So what are you doing now in terms of ministry, in terms of vocation, sure. in terms of yeah. your direction? Yeah, so right now I'm teaching finance 
for a university. I really enjoy that. I also do some consulting around generational dynamics and and helping some organizations target the messaging. You know, some people may say the meta messaging for a generation. So I do a little bit of that. And then I also am the director of our millennial ministry uh, at my church, Antioch. So I got a few things keeping me busy, but I love it and uh, love working with millennials. Again, I am a millennial, but, but yeah, so those are kind of things I got going right now. And for the lady holy smokers that are listening, this guy's single. I, I is. I is He's single. single. Very single. Ready so. to mingle. <laughs> are there any lady holy smokers my age out there? Yeah, there are some. Okay. There are some. They'll slide into my DMs later Especially on. after the, the um, Babylon B interview where we talked about last week. So last week oh. I was on Babylon B and okay. we talked about holy smokes and We've seen a nice bump in our downloads, and so Whoa. a very, very nice bump in our downloads for the Holy Smokes podcast, That's awesome. and so especially after what Ethan said about us on the Babylon Bee podcast. That's so, awesome. So, all right, Aaron Brown, let's get to rapid fire questions. Fantastic. Hey, everyone. Before we get to the rapid fire segment, I wanted to reshare a note that Kay and I got from an 80 year old listener that lives in Southeast Kansas and still works in his small town family business. He told us, I really lack male friendships because so many of my friends have passed the last few years. So I would value a group of men to spend time with. I'm learning some valuable lessons through the podcast and wish I was 30 rather than 80. I plan to stay tuned for more interviews. May God bless you and your group in 2020. He also talked about how we wrestle with the concept of men and women partaking in fine tobacco and drink because of the church and denomination he grew up in, but the podcast is changing that. When I showed this decay at his house recently, we both started tearing up. This is my why for doing this show. So if that moved you, would you consider partnering with us? Kay and I want to develop the website to better facilitate groups. We want to travel and get your stories for the podcast. We want to get back to doing two episodes a week, but we need your help. There are two simple ways you can help us out. Become a regular supporter at patreon.com slash holy smokes. That's patreon.com for as little as $5 a month. You can get early access to episodes, ad-free versions of the podcast, free swag like a holy smokes t-shirt, and more. That's patreon.com slash holy smokes. You can also make a one-time tax-deductible donation at paypal.me slash holy smokes club. And both of those links are in the show notes. Thanks. Rapid fire. <laughs> fire. Here. <laughs> How's that stick treating you? It's fantastic. I really Safari like it. Stays lit, easy, very smooth. You know, like some cigars, especially if they haven't been in a humidor for a while, you know, it just feels like you're sucking through a straw. And this one is just, it's alive. It's been, so. in, my, been in my humidor since March, so. God bless you, Steve Ryder. God bless you. <laughs> cigars or pipe? Cigars. I do smoke a pipe occasionally, but cigars. When did you first get into them? After Let's see. Okay. So it was probably the the day I left ORU when I could smoke. So yeah. went and bought a pack. Um, 
got a case of beer. Somebody gifted me a case of uh, actually fat tire. They gifted me a case of fat tire. And so had a little Holy Smokes, Tulsa Holy Smokes at that time. Had some friends over and it was a good time. So Favorite cigar? <sighs> Anything that's typically a Maduro and you know rich in flavor i'm starting to experiment more with like the connecticut wrapper and like a more mild form because sometimes if i don't time it just right and i smoke one of these i'll be up till three o'clock in the morning and so hmm. trying to learn how to time some of those so best dollar for dollar cigar it's a great question man i just don't think you can go wrong with a my father's that's just my opinion you go to place to get your smokes I go online <laughs> to get my smokes. So Thompson Cigar, uh, I'll order from, and then CigarPage.com. But if not, if I'm here in the Springs and I need to grab a stick, I will typically go to Old West here in the Springs because they've got a pretty good... Uh, Old West and Stag. I spend more time at Stag. But Favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? So I used to be a bourbon guy. Um, used to? I, I mean, I still like it. Don't get me wrong, Steve. I've really been getting into scotches more, and so. But uh, for this interview, you noticed I Irish brought whiskey. in. I brought in some Irish whiskey. It's Conor McGregor's Proper Twelve. So you know, if you're into UFC and boxing, you know who Conor McGregor is. But I just think this is so much better than Jameson, and I just like it a ton. So it's my go-to. What I keep uh, keep stocked at the house. Most interesting person you've met through cigars? Wow, that is a great question. You know, let's just give a shout out to the Pope of the Smoke, K. Hiramine. We'll just do that. The Godfather of Holy Smokes. Godfather, Pope of the Smoke. Most memorable cigar experience? Man, you know, we're so fortunate here in Colorado Springs to have so many memorable experiences. I mean, we have just such a phenomenal community here. I would say that when... It's more of a, a scenario, but when I'm sitting like here in the lion's den and sitting with a few of our older members who are maybe like age 60 and up, something like that, and you just feel like you're with kind of the grandfathers of the mm -hmm. Holy Smokes or something like that. There's something special about that for me. So I would say anytime something like that happens. Marvel or DC? Man. So I like the Marvel movies so much better than the DC movies. But I still collect comic books, and so I tend to collect more DC than I do Marvel. So there's a few Marvel titles right now. There's a Spider-Man Noir that I'm reading. That's fun. And then uh, Peter David just revisited a Hulk story he did back in 92 about future Hulk. Uh, and why is future Hulk ruling the universe or something like that? So that's been fun as well. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Trek. Favorite food? That's a tough one, man. I love a lot of ethnic foods, but if I'm going to do like a southern throwdown or something like that, we're going to fry some chicken. That's what we're going to do. So, What are your spices in your fried chicken? Man, that's a secret recipe, Steve. I can't give you that. <laughs> <laughs> dogs, cats, neither, or both? Oh, dogs. I've got a little dog named Fenrir. And uh, I named him after a Norse wolf god, Fenrir. Uh, he thinks he's a Norse wolf god. So, and he's only 30 pounds, so he just thinks he's bigger than what he is. Nickname growing up or in college? 
So nickname is growing up was Boo or Boo Boo. Um, my dad would say, this is my little boo boo. And everybody thought he meant he was saying that I was his little accident. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that was just what he called me. He was like, no, no, he, we planned on him. But I just call him boo, boo, Lee, boo, boo. Since college, Brownie is, was something that kind of stuck in college. And then most everybody calls me AB. So Doc Brown. Doc Brown. Doc Brown, we now call you. What's one fact, unusual fact, that few people know about you? That I enjoy musicals. What? I enjoy musicals, the theater. That's a little known fact about me. Favorite three books not titled the Holy Bible? The Message Bible. No. <laughs> I'm going to try and caveat that. Um, let's see favorite three books. So one book that I read about once or twice a year is called The Desert Fathers. Uh, it's a book on the sayings of, of these desert fathers and mothers in third or fourth century uh, Egyptian orthodoxy. And so these were the early saints that went into the desert and mm. found God. And, mm. you know, if you're a charismatic like me, you're like, wow, this is the original charisma right here. This, these are some crazy stories and I love it. So that one, uh, it's called, I actually, I think it's called Listen to the Desert is the name of that book. Um, so I read it about once or twice a year. There's a book that I really like that I used to give away frequently was Richard Foster's Spiritual Disciplines book. So I used to give that away a lot and I like that one. And then I would say there's a book by Kuzis and Posner that I came across when in my doctoral studies called the Leadership Challenge. And that's one of my favorites to revisit as well. So early riser, night owl, normal? Um, more of an early riser. Um, that doesn't mean that I get to bed on time, but I like to be up at least six o'clock and I like to get going with my day. Who's been the greatest influence in your life? Man, it's a great question. You know, I have had so many positive influences in my life, and I've been so fortunate. I feel like I stand on the shoulders of giants. I would say uh, there isn't just one person. Uh, my mom definitely has been a huge influence in my life. She was the first, she was the one that led me to the Lord when I was five. So I want to give her a shout out. Um, I would say Mr. Ryan, my high school history civics teacher. Uh, I would say. Uh, Dean Clarence Boyd from Oral Roberts University. I would say my second dad, Dan Guajardo, who was my vice president when I worked at ORU. And, uh, and uh, you know, Kay has been a great friend as well in my life. So, What do you do for self-care to rest, to recharge? I go to the mountains. That's what I, that's what I do. So I try to get out there as frequently as possible you know, trying to hike as many 14ers as possible as well. So that's just something for me that like last Saturday, I was out at Twin Lakes, Colorado and uh, woke up at 5 a.m., watched the sun rise, got out my breakfast cigar and drank coffee for a couple of hours and watched the sun come up. So what culture other than your own do you find most fascinating? I'd say any culture that prioritizes honor and those honor traits I find very fascinating. So anytime I come across like honor, shame culture, uh, that 
mesmerizes me, but also just the idea of honor in general. Um, there's, you know, there's things about Asian culture where they honor their elders, and you know, we see Jesus say that, you know, children don't say that they are a gift to their parents, but that their parents were a gift to them. And so, I think that's something that I feel like is missing in our American culture these days is just honoring our elders and and uh, yeah. What does Holy Smokes mean to you? And what has it contributed to your spiritual journey? Oh, man. So, you know, for me, like, you know, my father having been passed away, being able to be with so many, you know, older men who, you know, exemplify Christ and, or, you know, he's simply just fun to be around. Uh, there's, a, there's a fatherly, grandfatherly quality that I never talk about with them, but I just kind of bask in. Uh, when I'm with them. I think for me, one thing that with Holy Smokes that I try to beat the drum with with our members is you don't need to be obnoxious about it by any stretch of the imagination, but all of us Holy Smokesers need to continue to talk about what God is doing in our lives or what prayers we're praying or how we've seen God answer prayers because, and I think that's simply a conversation. It's not like you need to be doing the exact same thing that God showed me. Um, I don't think that's what we need to do, but you know, Hebrews talks about spurring each other on. And there are times where I'll be sitting and listening to somebody's story about what God has been saying to them or something like that. And that will spark something mm. that God's been dealing with me. I'm like, I need to get some pep in my step and be more earnest with what the Lord is talking to me about. So, you know, those conversations, when we talk about those things, we have no idea how it will positively impact somebody that's listening. So for instance, and, and I've shared this with the Holy Spirit, I feel like the Lord has given me a revelation recently about having joy. So James 1, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And past couple of years have been tough for some different reasons. And I realized somebody was talking to me about joy and the Lord just kind of spoke to me in that moment. He was like, you know, and I'm not saying he said it all just like this, but this is how it kind of downloaded into, into my heart was, you know, you've counted a lot of things optimistic, but you haven't counted a lot of things joy. And I was like, holy crap. Mm. Like, that's exactly right. Like, I've been optimistic about things. Like, everything's going to work out. It's going to be good. We just got to hang on. Um, but God is not a hang on God. God is a find joy in me. And so I have learned more and more with some of the things I've been walking through that when I start to lose my edge or, you know, get beside myself or something like that, I say, Lord, thank you for counting me worthy to walk through these mm. trials, these testings, restore to me the joy of you saving me, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Um, but Lord, give me that joy that that I can't get through the optimism, that I can't, mm. you know, and we could talk about the Stockdale paradox and all those things. But um, what, what I have noticed is that when I pull on the Lord and I say, Lord, you know, thank you for counting me worthy to walk through this stuff. Give me the joy of you saving me. There's just something supernatural about that. And, 
and uh, it just changes everything. So, last two questions: mm-hmm. If you were to have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history, mm-hmm. living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. Okay, because he's alive. He rose from the dead. So yeah. So John Favreau of Marveldom and now Star Warsdom and everything, uh, he just has a brilliant mind. He is just so creative and so talented. I'd love to sit sit down with him. Uh, another living person that I would want to sit down with is Elon Musk. I wouldn't want to work for Elon Musk, but I'd love to sit down with him and have a holy smokes. And then, you know, I think the the last person, my father was a very lonely person in life. Mm. And so I really wish he could have had something like this community. So mm. if I was throwing a, a holy smokes um, with everybody, I'd want him to be there. Mm. All this falling in the air. I tell you what, it's terrible, terrible. Last question. If we're meeting one year from today, mm-hmm. and I got a bottle of champagne, what are we celebrating? Mm. You know, I think we're celebrating Aaron finally got engaged. He finally did it after all these years. So I don't, I'm not dating anybody, but one year from now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Aaron Brown, Dr. Aaron Brown. Steve Ryder. Thanks for being on the Holy Smokes Podcast. Thanks for having me, Steve.